Welcome to the latest Red Star Bulletin, looking today at having a British-centric episode. So if you uh, hate and fear and loathe the uh, legacies of perfidious Albion, perhaps this isn't one for you. But maybe it is, because we are looking today at the myriad of contradictions surrounding the current strike wave in the UK, and looking at explaining uh, why we got to this place, particularly with regard to the health service, but also some of the other areas involved as well, and why voting for the Labour Party isn't going to be any kind of solution whatsoever, which I suspect most of you who live in Britain, and you're listening to this, you probably know that already. But it's worth just going over some ground as to the true record of the last Labour government, because it was almost 13 years ago now that Gordon Brown staggered out of Downing Street following an inconclusive election and a stitch-up by the civil service to bring in the uh, Liberal Conservative Coalition, which proceeded to spend five years uh, making a gargantuan pig's ass out of everything before crashing out of the European Union following One Gamble Too Many by David Cameron. But those are stories for other days. What I'm talking about today is the record of the Labour Party in government between 1997 and 2010, particularly when it comes to the public sector. And this is central to many of our issues which are hitting the headlines every day in Britain, particularly the nurses' strike, but other areas related to the NHS as well. And of course, NHS, if you're not British uh, means National Health Service, so a nationalised health system which enables anybody who lives in Britain to get immediate access, in theory, to the state-owned, in theory, uh, healthcare system and be treated and not be charged for the treatment. You will, of course, if you earn anything above a pittance, be charged for the medication. So that's another story which we'll, we'll get into. But I would be remiss if I started this episode of the update without looking at the situation as it is developing over in Ukraine with regard to the Russia-NATO war that takes place on the territory of Ukraine. And the situation on the battlefield has been one of incremental gains for the Russians, attempted counterattacks on a small scale by the Ukrainians, the Bakhmut operation, or Artyomovsk, if you prefer the Russian name for the town, uh, continues with uh, another few days of heavy Ukrainian casualties. There was, of course, the alleged visit by Zelensky to the front line there. This came out just this morning. Zelensky stood there looking grim-faced and saluting. However, it was pointed out that the film of Zelensky apparently in the Ukrainian pronunciation-wise town of Bakhmut, uh, was staged in such a way as it could have been shot anywhere. That There was no sound of gun or artillery fire on the film footage that was shown of him, whereas, of course, any footage you see coming out of uh, Bakhmut or Artemyovsk uh, is heavy on the gunfire and artillery fire sounds. It's nearly constant round the clock. And that this was filmed uh, in such a way as it, as I said, could have been filmed anywhere. This could have been another fake-out in a um, safer area in western Ukraine, filmed with a few uh, extras, to make it look as if Zelensky had gone there. Because most of the men on the front lines in uh, Artemovsk aren't going to know uh, if Zelensky was there or not. It's just got to appear as if he was. 
And, of course, it does raise the question of why the hell would Zelensky go there now, given that everything is going to shit? And, of course, it would be very dangerous for him to go there, given that the Russians do have fire control over all the roads in and out of the area around the city. So why would he be going there? And the answer, I think, is that he wasn't there. I mean, I, I could be wrong about this. I will address it if I am. But I think that they faked this thing up to make it look as if the great leader had made a terrifically inspiring visit to the men on the front lines. In actual fact, I don't think there's any way in hell that the handlers of Zelensky in the British Special Operations team and the Americans would allow him anywhere near that front line. Because I don't, I don't think the Russians would try and kill him, but there's a, always a chance that some of this heavy shell fire and missile fire goes astray, that there's some sort of accident, that he dies, and I don't think that the handlers that he has in the West want to see him cark it just yet. He's still got some juice to be wrung out of him, politically speaking. So I don't think that this took place on the front line at all. I think this was a fake-out. This is a film that's been made. Zelensky is back to doing what he's trained at, which is acting. He's acting the part of the great war leader, acting on a set, pretending to visit the front line. That is what I think has gone on there. And it only confirms one thing, really, which is that Zelensky's handlers have decided that um, they have to hold the line at uh, Artemovsk or Bakhmut, and the visit there is a sign that uh, Zelensky agrees that holding the line and fighting to the last man, as long as it's not him, in uh, that city is going to be vitally important. Why else would you put out this film of him apparently being there unless you wanted to give some kind of signal that the fighting was important and should carry on? If you wanted to withdraw, you would just quietly do it and not send the man who allegedly leads the country there. So that's not a good sign if you're a Ukrainian soldier uh, stuck in the trenches there. It's clear that the Ukrainian armed forces have decided they're going to hold that place for as long as possible. Now, could be that, of course, if the reports from the Russians are right, which is that if Artyomovsk falls, then the Russian forces would have a relatively clear run at uh, Kramatorsk and Slavyansk, just further north of that city, then it does make a grim kind of sense for the Ukrainians to hang on in Artemovsk to delay that Russian advance as much as possible. But whether that is worth it in the end, I don't think so. It's, I think it's a bloody and futile exercise that they are engaged in, as I've said before. The other big development recently, of course, is that the Russians have returned to the mass bombing of Ukrainian power lines with the various different drones that they have produced domestically or produced under license from Iran in some cases. And this continues to cause the Ukrainian government to have all kinds of freakouts at the Iranians who are just rather amusedly ignoring them. And it continues the strategy that the Russians have been using for a number of weeks now, which is heavy bombing of power facilities and power distribution facilities, followed by a pause to allow the Ukrainians to put the system slightly back together again, followed by yet another high-intensity campaign of bombing on these same facilities, so that eventually the whole system will break down. They're just stretching it and stretching it and stretching it until it snaps. And we wait and await the moment when the Russians will make some kind of move, all kinds of speculation as to what, 
and we still don't know. Uh, though Putin visited the uh, commanders recently, there was a meeting of the special committee that runs the war in Ukraine now, both on the uh, military side and the domestic, i.e. the economic and industrial production side of things. And this is all uh, building up towards something, and there's a myriad of speculation from various different sources as to what. Now, I will uh, return to this in just a moment, because Putin, Lavrov, and Shoigu, uh, representing the three highest posts in the Russian government, were all in Minsk this week for discussions with uh, Lukashenko and the other high-ranking members of the Belarusian government. And this was, um, if you read through the press conference given by uh, Putin and Lukashenko, you make a somewhat unlikely double act, but there you go. Uh, the focus uh, from Putin and Lukashenko was on integration on the economic side of things and building the framework of the union state further and if you don't know what this is this is the treaty that has existed between belarus and russia that was signed all the way back in 1997 by lukashenko who was president back then of belarus and of course the stumbling drunken buffoon known as boris yeltsin and this was signed in order to build a, essentially a transnational state and it had various different measures in this treaty, which included a joint parliament, which has never been called, and a joint governance structures and courts that have never really been implemented. But it did set uh, Belarus and Russia on a path of closer economic cooperation and integration. And it's that which Putin and Lukashenko were talking a lot about. And, of course... The one thing that they are rapidly building up now is military integration, which was a factor in the original treaty and then kind of left alone for many, many years. But force of circumstance has pushed this thing forward. And what the Russians are doing, of course, they've got under the terms of the treaty between the two states, the Union State Treaty, they have the right to station forces in Belarus. They have the right to carry out maneuvers there, do joint training with the Belarusian army, but it what it seems to be taking the direction of now is that of an integration of the Belarusian army with uh, the Russian armed forces. So one thing that Putin and Lukashenko announced was that um, Belarusian air force jets would be equipped to carry uh, missiles with special munitions on the warhead, which is taken to mean nuclear weapons, which is an interesting development there. Putin pointed out in his press conference that this isn't uh, Russia's in invention, that this is something that the Americans do with the NATO air forces, particularly the Germans, uh, put uh, nuclear-equipped uh, missiles on their uh, German air force jets, which, of course, is standard practice in a lot of NATO countries. And so the Belarusians getting the same thing is just, well, the Russians responding in kind, essentially. And, of course, uh, Putin and Lukashenko also announced that the Belarusians were getting the latest S-400 air defense system and that they are building uh, what will be, in essence, an integrated and shared air defense system between Belarus and Russia. And they will also be uh, building more and more shared structures and bringing the Belarusian army into line with the structures of the Russian army to basically mirror what, again, has been done with the NATO armies. So, in theory, the NATO armies can operate on the same level of training 
and integrate into each other's command structures in order to um, have a common army to field uh, if necessary. Now, this goes back a very long way. This goes back all the way to the early stage of NATO and was one of the things that NATO was established to do, essentially unite all these forces of these different capitalist states into one integrated whole run largely by the United States, though, of course, there have been various different nationalities at the head of the NATO military command. But this is uh, now what the Russians are doing in Belarus with the Belarusian army, making sure that that army, and of course, there's no language barrier there, not a significant one anyway, um, can be integrated into the Russian armed forces so that a Belarusian battalion can be inserted into uh, a line of battle with uh, a, a bunch of Russian battalions and be integrated seamlessly and there'd be no difference there. Now, of course, it's easier for them to do in terms of language, but also um, by doing this, it enables them to actually present a much more credible defense just in case the Poles decide to do anything monumentally stupid and attack Belarus for some insane reason. And it's really meant to be a defensive measure. You have now a Belarusian army which is going to be uh, trained to exactly the same standards as the wider Russian army, which is going to have its air force equipped with the latest Russian, by implication, nuclear missiles, which is going to be part of an integrated air defense system with the Russian Federation, which is going to be able to act in common with the Russian armed forces on every single level, which is all something that was started but not really put in process by the Union State Treaty over 25 years ago, but now, again, force of political circumstances making this a reality. So, is then the Belarusian armed force going to join the Russians in some sort of drive on uh, Kiev or some drive south into Ukraine? Uh, some, like uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, have speculated that they might be. The Belarusian army is around about 70,000 strong, so not uh, the size of the Russian army, but almost the size of the British army these days. So take that um, into consideration next time you hear some bloviating British bourgeois buffoon bang on about how great the British army is. It's barely bigger than the Belarusian army these days. You won't be seeing that as a headline in the Daily Mail anytime soon. But the point about this is um, the question of, is it going to be used in the special military operation as the Russians still insist on calling it? My estimate on this is no. And my reasoning for this is, first of all, I don't think it would be politically the right move to do at this stage. I think that the uh, backing for the increased integration through the union state system that uh, is politically enjoyed in Belarus, I mean, the integration with Russia economically makes a lot of sense from the, uh, the Belarusian point of view. Uh, the uh, press conference that Lukashenko and Putin gave talked about how they've achieved around about 60% of their economic integration goals, that they aim to do more, that Russia is Belarus's uh, single biggest trading partner by a million miles. So all of that makes sense, and all of that in terms of uh, economic benefits will be valued by many in Belarus, as will the ability to travel and work freely inside Russia, which of course they have already. Now, that's very different to and poses a different question than 
the Belarusian army moving into uh, Ukraine and potentially suffering casualties. Now, Russian casualties so far hasn't been high, but it would pose a political test for Lukashenko and his government, which even though they survived the color revolution attempt, in part thanks to the strong backing given by the Kremlin, do they really want to test out how the Belarusian population is feeling towards Lukashenko and the government by potentially incurring a lot of casualties? I would guess that the Russian calculation would be no, and that what they would actually want from the Belarusians is what Lukashenko said he would give them, which is essentially secure their flank and their rear when and if they choose to go into Ukraine via Belarus. So the Belarusian army, even though it can call up many more men, I don't think that the um, process of integration and training up to the same level has been completed yet to the satisfaction of anybody. I think what the Belarusian army will be used for is to guard their their frontiers, particularly against the the mad men of Warsaw, or the mad dogs of Warsaw, to give them their proper title, in case they try something incredibly stupid, and to put off any stupidity also from the, the yapping dogs of the Baltic. So I don't think that there'll be Belarusian troops joining this um, war en masse anytime soon. Now, I could be wrong on that, but I think the political reasons against it are too strong for them to do. So also, I don't think that Putin would want to push the Belarusians into a situation where they get even more sanctions on them than they do already, or potentially destabilize the political situation in Belarus. So Wait and see on that one, but I don't think that it will happen. I also don't think the Russians really need it, given that even by the overall commander, General Zaluzny, of Ukraine's armed forces now, in terms of battle readiness, he only has around 200,000 men. Russians have between 550,000 to 700,000 men, depending upon whose estimate you go with. But even if you go with the lower end, that's still more than double. And yes, Ukraine has a fuckload of paramilitaries and angry guys with Kalashnikovs, but that doesn't last very long against a disciplined armed force, which the Russians will be fielding, and a mass armed force, which they will be fielding. So I don't see them uh, needing the Belarusian army at this stage. I don't see them wanting to take the risk of deploying them into combat at this stage. So we'll see where that develops to. Now, There are some potential other big things coming up. There's another meeting of the Commonwealth of Independent States, uh, senior political figures coming up very soon, and I'll be talking about that when that's taken place. And uh, Putin and the other senior members of the Russian government continue a sort of breakneck speed of meetings all over the place, particularly with the former Soviet nations and close allies in terms of the Chinese and the Indians. And, of course, the developing relationship with the Erdogan government in Turkey. Uh, There's rumours now of a potential meeting between Assad and Erdogan to finally bring some sort of end to uh, the Syrian war by reaching some new accommodation between Assad and Erdogan. It'll be interesting to see when that happens, if there's some kind of bargain encompassing, of course, Syria, Turkey, Russia, Iran and others to agree upon some kind of course of action. Whatever they agree upon won't be particularly good news for the Kurdish forces in the north of Syria, 
who have aligned themselves so closely with the United States. But as I've covered before, that'll prove to be a stunningly, stunningly awful decision, even in the medium term. So, moving on then to the the meat of the episode, so to speak, and that is, of course, the situation in merry old England. England, my England, of rolling green hills, etc. So, what is going on in uh, merry old England at the moment is that there is a series of strikes going on involving largely public sector unions and unions that are uh, represented in areas that used to be public sector. So, for instance, we've got the, the big one is the railway strikes involving the Rail Maritime and Transport Union, the RMT, led by this guy Mick Lynch, who's been all over the media, largely getting the better of the frankly ludicrous bunch of overpaid clowns that uh, still present like uh, daytime TV and breakfast news in this country, who, if you've ever seen the Steve Coogan show Alan Partridge, and then you watch some of these guys, you'll think, well, if anything, Coogan was being far too subtle. Is like the buffoonish nature of these people. Is like it would be laughable if people didn't listen to them, or uh, thankfully a diminishing number of people listen to them. But so that's the big one that's been rumbling on for um, six months now, since the summer, early summer of this year. It's part of a lot ongoing dispute on the railways over staffing levels, over paying conditions, and. That's the one that's uh, been going for a while. There's going to be a train driver's strike starting soon as well, also over paying conditions. All comes from, of course, the disastrous decision in terms of actual services provided, not in terms of money made, by the uh, late Thatcher and early John Major governments to privatise what had been an integrated national rail network under the old British Rail state-owned company. And it's splitting it up into... Um, dozens of different franchises and operations and uh, privatizing every single aspect of it into different management structures. And then ultimately, the long, slow process happens from the late 90s onwards of the state having to take more and more of it back under public ownership or back under some kind of public control, to the point where what happens now is, of course, that the size of the subsidy that the state gives the privatized railway companies is so big that without it, they couldn't run a service. So the whole thing's a farce. It's called private, but the government pays most of the bills. Uh, the government insists that the union has to negotiate with the private operators. Then whenever a deal is wait reached with the private operators, the government steps in and says, you can't sign that deal because we're paying the bills and we don't want you to reach this deal with them. So this is an exercise in low and rather unfunny farce, which the government insists on engaging in. And whenever asked about it, because recently, government was revealed to have blocked a deal between the train operating companies and the unions over a 10% pay rise over two years and said, oh, it can only be 9%. Of course, the union couldn't accept that due to everything that's going on with uh, price rises in this country and the uh, diminishing of wage packets over many, many years. Anything less than 10% was going to be a no-no. Government decided that they couldn't possibly accept that. And... They are, from the, their classes' point of view, from the ruling classes' point of view, they're stuck because they are trying to, via the Sunak government, get things under control. But, of course, they've run into the resistance of the organized working class. And they have a bunch of politicians in the form of Sunak and others who are all obsessed with the image of Margaret Thatcher, not the reality, 
uh, which is that she never gave in, always fight the unions, blah, blah, blah. And of course, they're worried as on a more practical, real level that if they do give in to the RMT, if they are seen to be beaten by them, then it'll open the floodgates, even more than there is already been uh, an opening of the floodgates, uh, to pay claims and strikes from across not just the public sector, but into the private sector as well. And given that the entire economic plan of the British ruling class revolves around a worsening of terms and conditions, um, certainly in the private sector and the public sector as well, and a diminishing of union power to increase the exploitability of the working class, then a government getting beaten on a pay claim by a rail union that has been a four in the side of successive governments for over 20 years, that's a real bad look and one that the British ruling class does not want to be seen to be losing. Uh, now, this brings up, of course, the interconnected question of what about all the other strikes? You have the Communication Workers Union on striking the Postal Service, and again, that was a legacy of the David Cameron government, in part, though it goes back a lot further, the problems there, where they privatised a large section of it. Of course, a significant section of the post office was kept in public hands mainly related to the liabilities around the pension scheme so again this is another case of british capitalism in it at its most purely parasitic where they get to cream off basically the profitable parts of a public enterprise and the liabilities are all left with the state the private company then milks it for all it's worth and of course because you can't not have a postal service then whenever they get into trouble, the government has to bail them out anyway. And so the problems there around terms and conditions, around jobs, have been there for a long time now. They were there before it was privatized because there was a series of uh, long-running industrial disputes all the way back to the 2000s, which were related to uh, terms and conditions, but also the attempt by the previous Labour administration under a friend of Mr. Jeffrey Epstein, a certain Peter Mandelson, who was minister in charge of this at the time, he had a plan to privatise it in the later period of the Blair Brown government that was defeated by industrial action. Sadly, that didn't repeat in the early 2010s when uh, David Cameron and the Liberal Democrat Vince Cable came up with this wonderful idea of selling it off. So that's a strike that continues to rumble on and a strike that ultimately has origins that go back a lot further than anybody really wants to admit to. But the big one that is causing the government now the biggest number of headaches is, of course, in nursing, with the Royal College of Nursing uh, get, taking strike action this week, getting a gigantic amount of uh, public support, and rightly so, because, of course, they were infamously uh, clapped for their service during the whole COVID thing, don't want to get into that right now. Listen to the archive if you want to hear our various pieces of analysis on that. But they were uh, told that over and over again that they were heroes and needed to be applauded, literally, on the doorstep every Thursday or something. And then at the same time, of course, carrying on the pay freeze after pay freeze after pay freeze that has gone on now for many, many years, over a decade, in fact, in some cases. And you get the ridiculous situation where nurses who are working on the wards who are doing very difficult and taxing jobs uh, dealing with people in their worst circumstances and dealing with family members who are unbelievably stressed out 
it's a very difficult job. I've known quite a number of people in the nursing profession over the years, and it's not something that I'd want to do as a living, to be brutally honest about it. And so people who do deserve a high rate of pay in order to uh, recruit and retain them. And of course, there is a recruitment and retention issue in not just nursing, but in many medical professions, because the rate of pay has been held down for so long, the conditions have got worse. And also with uh, the other thing that I would point out with regard to nursing is that they've changed it over the years from being something which was uh, possible to work into via a more uh, training on the job and vocational route to one that's been pushed into the more into the realms of the academic route. So uh, people who want to go into nursing have to go through this whole degree course thing that stems ultimately from the tedious obsession that the Blair government had with creating this bloated and overburdened and overexpensive university sector so that everything had to have a fucking degree attached to it, despite the fact there is no possible logical reason why you have to have a degree to go into nursing when there was a perfectly good way of people working their way into it beforehand and training as they went or even if we look at the most ridiculous situation which is insisting that uh, you got to send all the coppers to get a university degree these days which is just hilarious and that got to the point where even the police chiefs rebelled against that Um, but again if we get into policing we'll be onto a whole other issue but thing about the nurses strike is first of all it's the one strike where almost everybody supports the strikers it's created a real public relations nightmare for sunak and he's incredibly stupid health secretary steve barkley though it doesn't really matter who the health secretary is it could be a plank of wood with a smiley face drawn on it it would have the same attitude which is we can't back down we can't back down which is the only thing that barkley says Citing, of course, it would be unfair because uh, high pay rise cause inflation, blah, blah, blah. But the point I wanted to make was that, of course, the uh, Labour Party is trying to make a big deal out of this, saying, ah, oh, well, it wouldn't be happening if we were there, then uh, challenged that what they would do if uh, they were in government or challenged if they backed the strike. Starmer always says no. Then the uh, chip off the old block, uh, Stephen Kinnock, the... Uh, grisly offspring of the the baron of bedwelty the man who joe biden used to plagiarize from neil kinnock former labor party leader and the man who gave birth to new labor um, he was out saying that they'd back using the military to uh, break the nurses strike and of course this caused some disquiet in the hierarchy of the military who are still feeling rather sour that even despite all the war talk from whitehall about russia Rishi Sunak isn't going to give them a budget increase. So the military officers, in terms of the uh, the senior men in the uh, the high command, are now grumbling openly that they don't see why the, their overstretched forces should be used to do strike-breaking in the health service, which, of course, not something that they would say normally, but the contradictions within the British state are getting bigger. And, of course, Labour, in the form of the grisly homunculus known as Wesley Streeting, one of a series of former students' union presidents who've risen to low office within the Labour Party. He is a man who has been put in charge of the health briefing for the Labour Party, and he's going to be the health secretary if Starmer staggers into number 10 at any point soon. And he is openly in favour of funding the private sector 
to, as he puts it, make up for the difference with regard to the number of NHS services that are uh, suffering from a huge backlog due to the fact that loads of stuff was cancelled needlessly due to COVID and then before that was increasing anyway in terms of waiting list times due to the fact that the government's cut the budget for many, many services and also also has seen many trained staff leave and you've seen a lot of services withdrawn from local areas and concentrated in the bigger hospitals inside the major cities in England anyway. And all of this contributes to a situation where you have an ever-increasing waiting list for operations, you have missed diagnoses for cancers and other major illnesses which if they'd been people had been seen earlier would have been potentially caught either way there's a lot of mess there and the Labour Party solution well we'll beef up the private sector and essentially make sure that uh, we cut down the waiting list by expanding the private sector and funding it directly through the NHS budget that is a recipe for essentially uh, privatization, not just by stealth, but it's overt privatization. Because if you're building up the private healthcare sector using public money, of course, they'll be clever enough not to do health charges on it. It will still be formally NHS treatment, but it will be another erosion of it as a national health service, which is, of course, what the Labour Party were all about in their 13 years in office. If you look at many of the things that are seen as problems in the NHS now, they often have their roots, of course, through the government of David Cameron, his ridiculous health and social care bill, but also back into the days of Tony Blair and Alan Milburn, the ridiculous chancellor who used to be Secretary of State for Health, and his big ideas, which were all about um, essentially privatising local uh, doctor's surgeries. That was one of the big ideas of the Labour Party, a lot of people say it was the Tories that started that process, but again, the roots of it are in the Labour Party's time in office. They were the ones who were encouraging uh, local doctors here are called GPs, general practitioners. They were the ones who were encouraging these GPs to form their own businesses out of their surgeries and essentially turn them into profit-making enterprises. Uh, the Labour Party was uh, behind the sell-off of a lot of uh, key clinical services in major hospitals to private healthcare providers, including Richard Branson's Virgin Healthcare. Of course, this remains hidden from the population as a whole because they are careful not to just slap on health charges and um, call it done. No, they, because the NHS is a very uh, beloved service to this day, and one that people in the working class and the significant section of the middle class are prepared to go out in the street and protest and defend and vote to end the career of politicians who are seen to be hostile to the NHS. This drives a section of the bourgeoisie completely crazy. They were always ranting and raving that the damn British population won't let go of their NHS. It's like a bloody religion, they all cry. And, well, if you were born into it and... Uh, cared unconditionally for by it at various points in your life when you need it as most of us have then it's something that you do grow attached to but also people have a solid class-based understanding of this they know very well that if it's gotten rid of well they're not going to be getting something better they're going to get a nightmarish version of the american system which will be brought in and this brings me to a point that i want to make about so-called health service reform and that is what, of course, Tony Blair was talking about, uh, talking about reforming the NHS, making it more dynamic, responsive, etc., etc. 
And of course, what he did was exactly the opposite. He made it more bureaucratic, less responsive, and of course, less public by transferring services and, of course, buildings and infrastructure over to the private sector. For those who aren't familiar with uh, this, the story behind this is around a policy known as PFI, the Private Finance Initiative, which is how public infrastructure was funded all the way through the Blair era. It was funded um, essentially via uh, private sector operations, private sector firms, building these things, uh, building new hospitals, and then leasing them back to the state at a gigantic and onerous uh, rate of interest. And so they have these like 30-year-long mortgages that the state has to pay to these private companies, which is basically a guaranteed income stream. And what the Labour Party did in its time in office was it built a lot of uh, new hospital facilities. And what it did was it would, and I'll use the example of Manchester, where I live, but you can also use other examples, uh, Coventry, Birmingham, uh, they would build up these large-scale uh, mega-hospitals in the middle of the city centre, which uh, were in Manchester's case is the uh, Manchester Royal Infirmary, in Birmingham's case is uh, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, and in Coventry's case they closed four local hospitals and merged them all together in one. Now, in the case of Coventry, they lost three hospitals and got one big one, but with actually less bed space and facilities in it than the four that had existed previously and in Manchester's case you see uh, the hospital in the south of the city in Withington get drained away of resources you see Trafford General um, lose uh, resources to MRI the Manchester Royal and you see a lot of the other hospitals that used to exist in the smaller towns, smaller cities, or in the outskirts, you used to have a lot of like um, smaller community hospitals, and a lot of these have been stripped of resources over many, many years, and it's all been moved into uh, these mega complexes, or just got rid of entirely. And this was a process that went through the late 90s, all the way through the 2000s with the Blair and Brown governments, and of course the new facilities that they built would be owned by the uh, private sector operators and this huge debt would be owed by the local NHS because of course it's all it's devolved to a point but of course the main thing that's devolved is debts and the responsibility of making cuts to services. The central government retains a hell of a lot of control over everything else and now this was another big mantra of the 1990s and 2000s. Oh, we're decentralizing. We're devolving responsibility. Horseshit, of course. What actually happens, not just in the health service, but all the way across the public sector, it wasn't devolution of responsibilities, not really. It was devolving the negative decisions, whilst the budgets and the ability to actually change anything remained firmly in the hands of a centralized bureaucratic authority. What was actually being gotten rid of all the way through the 90s and earlier on with the Thatcher period as well was any local democratic accountability. This was always done in the name of fighting bureaucracy, of course, whilst they increased centralised control and bureaucracy. See, as the health um, academic, uh, Dr. Alison Pollock, has uh, pointed out in a book she wrote 15 years ago now called NHS PLC, Blair talked about accountability and being responsive, but at the same time, his government was actually uh, making the health service less responsive and, and it had become more bureaucratic and centrally run over the years because 
the local uh, democratic input into health services had slowly been eroded by consecutive governments of both uh, Conservative and Labour Party uh, compositions. And Blair continued that process. So people in smaller towns lose access to um, hospital facilities that were there before. They lose the ability to have any influence over healthcare policy. It's all packed into giant sites in the middle of cities. And then those giant sites are um, privately held anyway, in terms of the fact that a lot of them were built using the PFI method. So this is a long-term series of problems that have gone on here which the Labour Party are every bit as responsible for as the Conservative Party. They are every bit as responsible for burdening the National Health Service with a gigantic amount of debt owned to private landlords and construction companies through the PFI. They are responsible for turning the whole thing into an over-bureaucratized nightmare in terms of its management structure. They are responsible for stripping away local democratic accountability in the name of supposedly making it more accountable, though actually making it more bureaucratic. This is the kind of ridiculous doublespeak that both Labour and the Conservatives engage in all the time. They're always talking about, oh, well, we needed to make it more responsive. That's why we sold it to Serco or another multinational company. This is all the rhetoric that goes along with the privatizations of not just the last 10 to 20 years, but really the last 50 years. It's always conducted in this manner of, Oh, uh, well, we needed to make the service more responsive to its customers. I saw one ambulance service official because the one other thing that's going on in Britain right now is, of course, a strike of paramedics who, of course, are operating in extremely underfunded and stretched services. And again, this is another case of the service gets concentrated into bigger and bigger centers and people in smaller towns and never mind villages lose access to things. So, for instance, ambulance services, there used to be uh, ambulance stations. Often they were uh, in the same area or even sometimes the same building as the fire services in Britain. But the town I grew up in used to have its own ambulance station and its own fire station. And after the last, well, 12 years, uh, the ambulance station's gone. Now the ambulance has to come from uh, central Manchester, and the uh, fire station is reserve only, retained only, which means um, it's guys with other jobs who get called up whenever there's a fire alarm. And so again, like this is a case of people losing access. And then they, they say they're building these new centers, but the actual amount of services that is provided from this new center that they say they're going to create is often much less than you would have got from the, the dozens of local services that were around the place. And this is how you cut services down. It's how you privatize things. You withdraw it from as many local areas as possible. You concentrate it in one place, and then you sell off that one place. And in the case of the ambulances and passenger transport, patient transport, they were doing that in Manchester over 10 years ago. So this is, of course, under the watch of Labour local authorities as well, who always cry and say they can't do anything. But of course, there is, even to this day, even with the diminished role of local government in Britain, there is the ability for local councils to make an issue out of things like um, health service cuts and privatizations and damage to local ambulance provision, fire service cuts, things like that. Local councillors could make a much more big deal out of everything that has gone on in terms of the um, health care uh, services and emergency services over the last 10, 15, 20 years. But of course they don't because 
A lot of the major urban centres are run by the Labour Party and they didn't want to say anything to oppose the Labour government for the 13 years they were in office and certainly none of the Tories are going to say anything for their guys over the last 12 years. And so we reached the point where we've got a nurses' strike for the first time in 40 years. Uh, we've got ambulance uh, service workers going on strike. We've got um, the potential um, further deepening of the rail strikes. And the government just sits there hoping desperately that all of this will go away. They would be well advised to at least make a deal with the nurses because, of course, that's the one part of the uh, the workforce that only real sociopaths have anything against. But, of course, they are stuck now. It would be better tactically for the British ruling class if they could stick Keir Starmer in there. But, of course, as I've just outlined, Keir Starmer heads a party which is at least as responsible for all of these issues as the Conservative Party is and is only committed to furthering many of the problems that have caused these strikes in the first place. They won't do anything significant on public sector pay. They won't do anything to reverse the... uh, staffing crisis in the health service they won't do anything to reverse the chronic indebtedness of a lot of local nhs trusts who uh, owe all this money to the pfi contractors keir starmer of course offers absolutely nothing he in fact was recently promising that he was going to get tough with the health unions well go out ahead keir see what happens and so uh, we are stuck as long as we remain uh, voting for this non-alternative for reformism without reforms, for this pallid slab of rotting ham in an ill-fitting suit known as Mr. Keir Starmer, this is no solution whatsoever. It is only going to be another shifting tactics from the ruling class who stick the fading power of the Social Democrats in there in the hope that they can use their relationship with the trade union bureaucracy to grind the working class down more effectively than the clueless bumbling of Rishi Sunak and the, the exhausted reactionaries in the Conservative Party. So as long as we remain on this merry, merry-go-round or not-so-merry-go-round, there will be no solution here. It will only be resulting in life getting worse at a slightly slower rate, perhaps, for the working class. And of course, this must be entirely unacceptable to all of us. And so the question remains, like, what to do? Well, one of the big things is this idea of the Labour Party as representing some kind of alternative based on some nostalgic view about the Blair government funding public services properly needs to be thoroughly dispelled because they created all these crises as much as the Conservative Party. And they agreed with a lot of the policies that led us to this point. And so it's utterly futile to go around saying, no, well, you know, vote Labour, you might not like Keir Starmer, but it'll be a little bit better. Well, no, because he'll be confronted with the crisis of British capitalism as much as Rishi Sunak is. And his only solution, or the only way in which he might choose to be a bit different, is more openly reversing Brexit, perhaps. Re- more reintegration with the EU single market. Um, other than that, His approach will be almost exactly the same, only, of course, because of the relationship with the trade union leaders, he will be able to lean more heavily on them for um, controlling their members to prevent these strikes breaking out and going further than they have done already. So a Labour Party government offers absolutely nothing in terms of solutions, and it must be a priority to cut this wretched thing loose from the union movement because at the moment it just operates as a giant blood-sucking 
vampire-type creature which drains resources out of the union movement and gives absolutely nothing to the working class, to regular workers who are in the trade unions, because the only thing the Labour Party does is provide a career path for the most ridiculous and buffoonish union bureaucrats who want to be councillors and MPs. That's the only thing it provides now. It provides nothing in terms of tangible gains for the working class. And so the argument needs to be made in every union that's still affiliated with the Labour Party, and this will be easier in some than in others, that it doesn't matter if the union's not going to put political funds into any party. Not spending that money and funneling into strike funds or other campaigning uh, funds is going to be a lot more productive for the union movement than throwing money at the Labour Party. Now, if you've listened to the programme before, you'll know that I have various critiques of the union movement. But even if we just take this down to the most basic level of value for money, the Labour Party is value for nothing. It provides nothing. It provides just a career for certain bureaucrats. And so the sooner we can get moved through the union movement, various measures of disaffiliation to break this link entirely, to cut this parasitical entity known laughably as the Labour Party off, to kill the idea once and for all that it is anything other than just a bad photocopy of the American Democratic Party now, because that is all it is. There's nothing in there that's of any positive value to the British working class whatsoever. It needs to be cut off, and it needs to be allowed to wither away. So the objection will come, well, well, you know, know, we need something now. We need to be able to ameliorate the damage that the Tories have done. Uh, Labour's the only game in town, etc., etc. All of those are false arguments. Because, as I have outlined in brief in this episode, and I am going to get uh, some guests on in the near future to talk more in detail about this, is that they created so many of the problems that the, the Tories then came in and made worse that you cannot argue that they are an alternative. You cannot argue that they are an alternative to the Tories on things like economic management when it was their constant deregulation of the activities of the City of London firms, which added fuel to the flames that became the bonfire uh, that that is the Great Recession, followed by the Long Depression that we have been in ever since. You can't argue that they present an alternative there because they don't, and because they would carry on the deregulation of the City of London that Rishi Sunak and his friends are engaged in right now. There was a recent article in the Financial Times about this saying that, oh, we're doing careful deregulation. No, they're just going to do all-out deregulation. They're going to go even further in terms of trying to rebuild the system as it existed prior to 2008 because they've just lost their preeminent position in terms of world financial centers to the Parisians. And the Parisians are welcome to it. But The demand from the City of London will be for more and more deregulation, and the Labour Party is going to give them that just as the Tories will. Labour Party is not going to repeal a single anti-union law. Labour Party is not going to reverse any of the most damaging policies that are endangering the health service. Labour Party is not going to reverse any of the deindustrialization that have taken place over the last 40 to 50 years. The only thing they're going to try and give you is the phony green industrial revolution, which is just results in a whole bunch of subsidies chucked at a bunch of con men who will deliver an occasional windmill. This is no solution. They have nothing. They have nothing 
for the working class in this country. And that's before we even get to the uh, foreign policy and the long record of the Labour Party of being every bit as an enthusiastic a group of imperialists as the Conservatives are, and of course every bit as enthusiastic about continuing the uh, proxy war in Ukraine as the Conservative Party is. Keir Starmer has banned all criticism of NATO within the Labour Party. Where is this alternative? Where is the relief going to come that the advocates of the Labour Party still insist is worth voting for the Labour Party in order for the working class to receive this amelioration of the horrors of the Conservative Party? And the Conservative Party are a horror, but they are a horror who is in business with the Labour Party, who is in partnership with the Labour Party. They are the left-right fist of the capitalist class, and they will carry out an attack on the working class just in slightly different ways. So what is it that the remaining advocates for a vote for the Labour Party, including many of these union leaders, including people like Mick Lynch, who will tell you to vote Labour? He'll say, oh, well, they're promising to nationalise the trains. Well, I'll believe it when I see it, Mick, quite frankly. So the question needs to be raised and the demand needs to be raised that this thing needs to be cut off from the millions and millions of pounds it gets every year via the um, the union dues of ordinary working class people who pay into their unions in the belief that they are paying for a vehicle that is going to help defend them when they need it. It's actually paying for the careers of a layer of slime that it seeks to ooze its way up into political office. It needs to end. It is unsustainable. It should be unsustainable. And something else needs to be brought in because as things stand, then all we are doing and all these union leaders are doing by telling you to vote Labour is just essentially telling the working class that they will be in for a worse life, but just slightly slower than you'd get it with the Tories. And that is unacceptable. And it should be unacceptable to anybody who considers themselves any kind of socialist. So thank you for listening. I'll be back again later this week with more updates uh, focused more on Ukraine, but I may go back to this topic uh, if there are some more developments on that. So, thank you for listening, and I'll be back with you again very soon. The pizza's like pizza's bread, it's shrouded off, no matter dead. Dead limbs are stiff and cold, a heart blood died in every fault and raise the scarlet standard high. But in this shade we live and die, our flinch and sailor spear, we keep the red light lying here. Look round the Frenchman, loves this blaze, the sturdy German guns are slayed, the gospel falls in their song, Chicago swells the surging front and raise the scarlet standard high. But in its shade we live and die. Oh, cowards, lynch and trailers, spear, we keep the red light flying here. It waves above the rinse at night when all ahead seems dark as night. Witness many a deed and vow, we must not change its color now. And raise the scarlet standard high. Shade we live and hide on our slate and play the spear. We beat the red flag flying here. It well recalls the triumph, as it gives the hope of peace and last. The banner bright, the symbol.
human right and human gain in a rays of scarlet sunlight. Within this shade we live and die. Oh, our sins and traitors sneer. We keep the red light flying. Scarlet, sunburned, high. Within its shade, we live and die. 